Well, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 12 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, beginning with verse 12, it uh, has in my heading of the ESV, final instructions and benediction, and uh, we're not going to read all of those final instructions uh, this week, it goes on uh, a few more verses, and then the benediction, and we're going to take that next week. But we're going to look at uh, some of these final instructions today. So if you have your place in your copy of God's Word, would you follow along as I read First Thessalonians 5, beginning with verse 12 and reading through verse 18. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, there is a break that begins in verse 12, and yet it's not a complete break. It has a relationship to what we looked at last time in the opening paragraph of chapter 5. And in that opening paragraph, Paul was talking about the difference between the believer and the unbeliever as it concerned the day of the Lord. Uh, for the unbeliever, it's going to come uh, like a thief in the night. In other words, they're not going to be ready for it. They're not going to be prepared for it. They're going to be taken by surprise. And Paul also said that it will be for uh, the man of the world um, analogous to a woman who goes into labor. In other words, uh, the judgment that will be coming at that moment will be inescapable for the world. The world will be taken by surprise, and the judgment will be inescapable on that day. That's what Paul said about the day of the Lord and the world in sin, the world in Adam, the world out of Christ. But not so for the Christian. The Christian is going to experiencing, experience something quite uh, the opposite of all that. This is the day of salvation to the uttermost. Now, Paul had used the metaphors of night and darkness and day and light to do to distinguish between the world on the one hand and the church on the other. Um, The Christian does not belong to the day or to the night. Uh, You don't belong to the darkness. You've been translated out of that kingdom of darkness into uh, the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the day, if you will. Uh, You have been brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It's not just that you have been brought into the light. The light has been brought into you. Uh, Children of light is how Paul described uh, the children of God in this world. Children of light, characterized by light. The light has, to some degree, gotten into you. What does Paul mean by that? How has the light gotten into the Christian in a way that is not true of the world around us? 
Well, one thing this means is that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ is your experience. It has gotten into you as a result of the new birth, and consequently, you know the Lord. You have a relationship with him. You, you know him experientially as your Lord and Savior. The light has entered in that way. And having entered in that way, something else has happened to you, and that is the Bible is manna for your soul. Uh, you need God's word, and, and God's word informs your faith, and it informs you about how you ought to live and how you want to live. And, and so the Bible, your, your relationship with the Bible is quite different than the world around you. Now, considering who you are, children of the day and of the light, Paul exhorted you to live accordingly. He said the world is spiritually asleep and morally drunk, but the church is not the world, and the behavior that is fitting for the Christian is behavior appropriate for the day, not the night. Now, as Paul begins verse 12, he is not making a complete break. He is now going forward, fleshing out daylight kind of living in a variety of situations. He's not being exhaustive in verses 12 through 21, but he is painting with a broad brush as he considers the Christian in various relationships. First, how we relate to church leaders. Uh, secondly, how we relate to those with various spiritual needs in the church. Thirdly, how we relate to all people. And then finally, how we relate to the triune God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, we're going to look at um, living as children of light in all of these different uh, facets. Beginning first with living as children of light in our attitudes and our response to the leadership of the church. Look at verse 12 and 13 with me. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, Paul is describing the work of people that the Bible variously calls pastors or elders or overseers. That's the titles that you find in the Bible, but Paul doesn't use any of those titles here. He just describes them in terms of the work that they do. Paul was in the habit of appointing elders in all of the churches that uh, he planted. Uh, for example, in Acts 14.23, we read this about Paul and Barnabas after they evangelized Galatia, the province of Galatia and the various cities of that province, we read Acts 14.23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Luke even names a couple of the elders from the church of Thessalonica in Acts 20, verse 4. Uh, one of them is uh, named um, Aristarchus, and the other is Secundus. These weren't the only elders, but they were two of the elders of this church. The, the bottom line is, this is a church that had leadership. It was a young church. It was a relatively immature church. It wasn't um, 
Um, they hadn't been in the faith very long. Even their elders were, were um, not that long ago, were converted to Christ. Um, but it had leaders, and um, that is who Paul has in mind here in verses 12 and 13. And they're described in terms of their work in three ways. First, they labor among you, he says. And that labor includes many things. But uh, one of the things that we know about from the New Testament is to labor in the ministry of the word. The, the, 1 Timothy 5.17, that vocational elder, uh, he is to labor in the word. He is to be a, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, Paul says that uh, pastor teachers... Uh, need to labor in this way. And they had those um, pastors in their church that not only labored in the word, but labored in many other ways. Uh, they are secondly described as over you in the Lord. Uh, they do more than labor for you. They also give leadership. That second participle is even translated in Rom Romans 12, verse 8, as one who leads. Now, that leadership is qualified. It is said here to be in the Lord. In other words, it's in the spiritual realm and the spiritual realm only. And the expression in the Lord indicates that that authority is derived and delegated from the Lord himself. And therefore, it has to be exercised in accordance with the mind of the Lord as revealed in Scripture. But it is an authority that must be exercised in behalf of the church. And thirdly, their work is described here as involving admonishing. Now, that's a negative task. It may not be pleasant, but sometimes it's necessary to do painful ministry. Sometimes it's necessary to do unpleasant kind of things for the sake of an individual or for the sake of the body as a whole. That word admonish um, is built on two words. One is the word mind, and the other is the word um, to put. The idea is to put sense into the heads of the people. It carries with it the idea of warning and sometimes rebuke. Now, the question is, why does Paul mention this negative aspect of the work of church leaders. Well, I think it's because of what he's going to go on to say in verse 14a, as he calls for all gainfully employed believers in that church uh, to also do the work of admonishing, uh, coming alongside of those who have been idle, who have quit their jobs to uh, do what the elders have been doing. And we read this in verse 14a, we urge you, brothers, Admonish the idle. Now, in the context of 1 Thessalonians, I think we can say that there were some in that congregation who were not listening to their elders when the elders were saying, you need to go back to work. We don't know exactly why they quit their jobs. I think the best educated guess is they had rapture fever. Some believe that there was a false prophecy about the nearness of Christ's return, and that's why they quit their jobs. That could be, given what Paul will say in verses 19 through 21. But that is not a Christian response, and they need to go back to work, and, and the elders have been admonishing uh, these idle 
in the church that they need to go back to their jobs and stop sponging off of others in the church. They, they, that was a poor witness uh, to the watching world around them. Now, Paul does not um, just describe a leader's work, but he calls forth the appropriate response to leaders. First, he, he says, respect them, and that's what the idol in the church were not doing. And that wasn't a right attitude to the leadership that Christ himself had appointed to the church, especially given the fact that what they had been doing was right. But it's not uh, enough said on the subject because we're given more in verse 13 where he says, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Well, secondly, living as children of light in our attitudes and responses to spiritually needy believers. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Uh, Richard Phillips says that there is a view of ministry called clericalism, and what clericalism basically believes is that ministry um, is something that is the exclusive work of the leadership of the church, but that is not right. Uh, that is not a, a biblical idea at all. Uh, let the domini do it. That's the Dutch word. Uh, let the domini do it. That's his job. No, it, ministry is a, is a whole church responsibility. Yes, there are unique aspects of ministry on, uh, that uh, the leadership of the church needs to carry out. But when it comes to whole body ministry, that involves every member of the body of Christ. Think about all the one anothering text that we have in the New Testament. Or think about verse 14 right here. Um, that certainly says that clericalism cannot be right. Um, Paul has in mind three special needs in the Thessalonian congregation. He, he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. That's the first group that he singles out here. Admonish the idol. He had talked about the idol in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and he implied in Chapter 5, verse 12, that the idol were not showing respect for their leaders. What they were doing is they were giving their leaders an excedrin headache. Uh, they were making them feel very keenly how painful ministry can be. And what Paul is saying uh, to the church is that pastors ought not be the only people in the church that have excedrin headaches. Every Christian needs to be willing to get involved at times in what can only be said to be a painful ministry, to come alongside of somebody else who genuinely um, needs um, to hear a faithful word from another brother or another sister, a faithful admonition. Now, I would hope, and I think that there probably was uh, some people who responded favorably, even though they had been resisting what their pastors had been telling them. But now that Paul is basically admonishing them through this letter, and he's calling members of the church to 
reinforce the judgment of their pastors and come alongside of these people and admonish them as well. I, I've got to believe that some of them went back to work. But we know from 2 Thessalonians 3 that not all of them did. And Paul will call forth a more drastic measure in his next letter. Obviously, the patience that he calls for at the end of verse 14 does not mean that disciplinary steps are are never to be taken. Patience, we need to remember, is long-suffering. It's not eternal suffering. There are limits to how far patience can be extended. In other words, we can't afford to be indifferent to sin. To be indifferent to sin in the church is like being indifferent to cancer. I mean, that can kill. You can't afford to be indifferent to it. Well, secondly, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, the faint-hearted were the discouraged souls in the Thessalonican church that were fearful that maybe the Christian dead, there's been at least one funeral since Paul left town, probably several, given the persecution of this church. Uh, But there has been a funeral, and some in the church are wondering, did that brother, did that sister who died uh, now, will that brother, will that sister in some way miss out on the full benefits of the second advent of Christ? And they were faint-hearted because of that. And Paul addressed that problem at the end of chapter 4. And you remember that as he addressed that problem, he first addressed it with the gospel, and then with the promise of God, and then with the program of God, in order to instill hope in their souls. That's how you encourage the faint-hearted. He calls us to do that likewise, even though the faint-hearted may have a faint-heartedness due to some other concern. But we all are at times faint-hearted, and what do we need? We, We need to We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the promises of God. We need to be reminded of what the word says and what God's purposes are for us and where this is all going. Um, You know, Paul pointed out to them that with God's program, uh, these believers who died in the Lord, not only are they not missing out, they're going to be given a peculiar honor at the second advent. They'll be the first to rise to meet the Lord. But it was the word of God that they needed. They needed to have their minds bathe again with the truth of God's word. We need that too. Thirdly, he says, help the weak. Now, the weak in the church were those that were struggling with moral purity. A lot of these people had been saved out of paganism. It was just so a part of their life and Some were struggling with the old Adam. We read about that in chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And Paul says, help the weak. Now, the weak aren't just those in the church that struggle with uh, moral purity. They may struggle with alcohol. They may struggle with food. They may struggle with a number of different things. And what does the Holy Spirit say about uh, the weak member of the body of Christ? Help them. Well, how do you help them? What does that mean? Richard Phillips explains, The word for help literally means to lay hold of with the idea of not letting go. This should be our response to Christians who fall prey to substance abuse or are entangled in ungodly relationships and 
who thus require close accountability and constant support. Well, thirdly, living as children of light in terms of our attitudes and responses toward all people. Look at verse 14b and then verse 15. The back half of verse 14, be patient with them all. Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Remember that great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13? Paul gives 15 verbs in kind of rapid succession about how love behaves and doesn't behave in verses 4 through 7 of that chapter. Do you remember how he began describing how love behaves? He said, love is patient. First thing he said. Now, People require love, not circumstances. And so the patience here is patience toward people, not to circumstances. People require a forbearing spirit. And when they are vexing, patience manifests itself in that forbearing spirit. It speaks of somebody who's willing to strive long with another without retaliation for injuries. It's a, an explanation why the world is still revolving, quite frankly, why the sun came up today, why the world is spinning on its axes, why God is continuing to sustain this creation with so many good things and blessings. It's because God is incredibly patient. It's because he's not... Uh, wishing that men would perish in their sin, but that they would repent and believe the gospel and live before God. God is manifesting that forbearance at present. And that is what Paul is calling us to be like. But we should not just think about God's patience toward the world. On a more personal level, we ought to think about God's patience toward us. If you're a Christian, God was so patient with you that he preserved you and kept you when you were living as his enemy, and he did not allow you to perish. His patience explains why you were ultimately brought to salvation. But now that you've become a Christian, and now that the Holy Spirit is in in you, and you are much more sensitive to sin than you used to be, far more sensitive Isn't it true that you know in your own experience what it is to try the patience of your God? And yet, you haven't been able to dry it up, have you? I mean, that's a wonderful truth about our God, how incredibly patient he is. Now, when Paul says, be patient with all, I think he means all in two senses, looking backward, He has people in the church in view in verse 14. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that the church never deals with sin in terms of church discipline. We're going to see that Paul will call forth uh, the first steps of church discipline in 2 Thessalonians 3 for those idle that are stubbornly impenitent. But um, patience is to be extended as far as possible in the church. 
And Paul also means patient with all men as we look forward from those words and consider how we respond to even those who hate God and hate his people. Living as children of light in a dark world means loving even our enemies. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Well, that's how Jesus lived, isn't it? Uh, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But, you know, while a Christian is to respond in an altogether different way to sinners than they have responded to us, and we need to remember that Paul is writing these words to a church that is being persecuted for their faith, that doesn't mean that Christians can never seek justice. It doesn't mean that Christians can't use the courts. Um, Richard Phillips gives some very helpful comments at this point. He says, This precept does not preclude Christians from seeking lawful redress from the civil authorities who are appointed by God to this very end, see Romans 13, 3 and 4, nor does it mean that we should not act in defense of others, yet when it comes to merely personal injuries against ourselves, Christians are privileged to honor Jesus by turning the other cheek and giving our cloak as well to the one who asks for our tunic. Well, fourthly and finally, living as children of light in terms of our attitudes and our responses to the triune God. Look at uh, the three commands that are given in a row there in verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Now, when we consider the human instrument that the Spirit is speaking to us through, namely the Apostle Paul, this carries, I think you would say, a bit of gravitas. I mean, if you read about Paul's life, uh, he had more trouble in his life, quite frankly, than any Christian I've ever heard about. Uh, you just read Second Corinthians 11 and the litany of trouble and the litany of sorrows and the litany of persecutions and trouble and problems that came his way as fulfilling his ministry as the apostle to us Gentiles. And by the way, that is not even written anywhere near the end of his ministry. He's got a lot more pain and suffering in front of him. He, he hadn't even been in his first Roman imprisonment yet, and yet it's just full of sorrow and trouble. But think about his first Roman imprisonment. He's, he's in this prison on account of Christ unjustly. And uh, from that prison, he writes uh, a letter that is brimming with joy. We call it Philippians. This is a man who practiced what he preached. Now, rejoicing always doesn't mean plastic smiles or a denial of other experiences. I consider the example of Habakkuk the prophet. Habakkuk was a man that we discover at the end of Habakkuk in chapter 3, uh, in verses um, 17 and 18, that he was able to rejoice 
uh, in his God. He was able to rejoice in the God of his salvation, even though the economy was being shot apart. It was, it was crumbling. This is what he says in Habakkuk three seventeen and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the field, and there be no cattle in the stalls. What's he talking about? He's, he lives in an agricultural economy. If the, if the economy totally collapses, verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Well, what is... What does that mean to be able to rejoice in the God of your salvation at a moment like that? Well, it doesn't mean that you're ignoring a moment like that and what's going on around you and that you're somehow impervious to it and you're some sort of spiritual, hyper-spiritual person that you know, somehow just doesn't have to live in the real world. It doesn't mean plastic smiles. It doesn't mean that there are no tears in your eyes. It doesn't mean that there are not conflicting emotions going on in your heart because the prophet tells us that he was shaking in his boots. And I think if you look at him, there are tears in his eyes. He had just said this in the prior verse. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. The prophet is telling us he was shaken to the core by the revelation of the Babylonian invasion, and he was so shaken, he tells us that his legs were trembling. That stoutest part of his humanity, those tree trunk members of the human body, even the strongest part of his humanity was shaking like a leaf. And he tells us that it was like decay had entered into his bones so that he couldn't even stand. He had to sit. And this is the very saint who in the next verse tells us that he is rejoicing in the God of his salvation. You can rejoice in the God of your salvation and be shaken like a leaf and have tears in your eyes. Those things can be going on at the same time. The key to his rejoicing is the unshakable truths about his relationship with God. To be Pauline about it, there is nothing, therefore, in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the key to rejoicing. It's not our circumstances which might rightly cause us to shake and fill our eyes with tears. Even so, God is your Savior, And he will never abandon his people, but will use whatever comes our way to serve our eternal good. Rejoice always, he says. And then he says, pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, it doesn't mean that you pray 24-7. That would be impossible. You would uh, fail to do other duties in life, and so that's not what he means, obviously. What he means by praying without ceasing is be regular in prayer, be daily in prayer. Daniel, the prophet, we are told, had three times every day that he set apart for prayer. And by the way, that's descriptive of Daniel. That's not prescriptive for you and me. I don't know how a mother with young children could possibly set apart three times in a day for prayer. But what the point is, is that Daniel had regular daily prayer. And in that, it is uh, prescriptive. That's what Paul is talking about. Have regular times in prayer. Think about Daniel praying even when it was dangerous to pray. The king had said, if you pray, that's it for you, buddy. You're being fed to the lions. Daniel reasoned, I have more reason to pray now than ever. And he came to the king of the kings and the lord of the lords. And, well, you know the story. The point is, is that when life goes south and great trouble comes into your life, keep praying. Pray. Um, Ceaselessly pray, even when things are difficult and hard, when life is falling apart. Pray without ceasing. Be regular in your times of prayer. Don't let the circumstances of your life keep you from prayer. Don't cease from prayer. And don't cease from prayer when life is going well, when, when, when the wind is at your back and not in your face, when everything is going swimmingly. Uh, remember that you have need to pray, not only to give God thanks for those good things, but isn't it true that there are unique uh, dangers associated with prosperity? It's not just with adversity that there are dangers associated with it. Aren't there great dangers with prosperity? So keep praying. Don't stop praying. Ceaselessly pray. pray. Every day, have time for prayer. And then he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we give thanks for all the things that come into our lives. Some of the things that come into our lives are evil. I mean, they're really bad. Paul says, Notice the preposition here. Give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. When evil things come into our lives, we can't be thankful for the evil. Well, God doesn't expect us to be thankful for the evil. But in all circumstances, realize that your sovereign God overrules the evil for your good. That you can be thankful for. So, Give thanks in all circumstances. That is the will of God for you. And Christians of all people should be thankful. Look at verse 18b. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
Now that second part of this verse probably has a reference to all three commands of verses 16 through 18. It's God's will for you to rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. It's not the sum total of God's will. The definite article in the Greek is not before the word will, but this is part of God's will for your life. But Christians of all people should be thankful because of what we read here in 18b, because you are in Christ Jesus. To be a Christian is to have union with Christ, and if you have union with Christ through faith, it means that you have every spiritual blessing. You don't have some of the spiritual blessings. You've got them all. Even those that you haven't yet inherited, it's vouchsafed to you because you are in Christ. You will have them. You have every spiritual blessing. Every Christian has every spiritual blessing. These blessings are eternal. Uh, They will never be taken away. They can't be taken away. We do not um, look um, uh, down our nose at temporal blessings. We are grateful for them. We all experience them every day, temporal blessings, earthly blessings, material blessings. Thank God for those blessings. We give him thanks. But isn't it true in our own experience that we know what it is to have an earthly blessing and have it taken away? You can have good health. You can have health um, for most of your life. And then suddenly that blessing can be taken away. It It can take wings and it can fly away. But spiritual blessings aren't like that. Spiritual blessings can never be lost. Recently, a a pop star died having lost her battle with breast cancer at the age of 73. She was what um, in the modern lingo would be called a superstar in her day, uh, an enormous talent. Uh, She was a household name. Uh, As a young woman, she had the world by the tail. And even before she died, She had that blessing of health taken away from her. It was a long battle for her. It went into remission and came back and lingered for years and finally lost completely the battle. But she knew what it was to have health take wings and fly away. And I was genuinely curious about this person. I didn't really know much about her, so I I read some articles or read at least one article about her faith and what she believed, and I discovered that she had um, kind of a smorgasbord approach. She had adopted elements of Christianity, and she mixed that with elements of non-Christian world religions. Uh, For example, the Christian element of her smorgasbord faith was that she recited the Lord's Prayer every day. But she said nature was her church, And she was publicly supportive of things that the Bible condemns. Uh, She gave no evidence uh, that um, she was in the Lord. Her faith and her life did not reveal a woman in Christ. You know, it's sad when somebody is not in Christ in this world. That's sad. But when you die and you're not in Christ, that's tragic. What I'm saying to you, dear brother, dear sister, 
in Christ. That's right. That's what's true about you. Is that you always have something to thank God for because by his grace you are in Christ. And when this passing world is done, you are the people who will inherit the kingdom in all of its fullness. And so give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Amen. Our Father, we are thankful for these reminders today of how we are to live as children of the light. We have heard from your word and we pray that by your spirit that we would live as children of light in these ways that you have called us to live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.